Quick disclaimer, we're in Samurai Legends, so it's more violent than usual, including some mention but not depiction of self-harm. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com, linked in the show notes, for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're telling the story of the lost sword and the samurai who will do anything to find it. We'll learn that robbing people is bad and when you should give up on that old job and move on. Spoiler, it's before you spend a year being Samurai Batman, dispensing vigilante justice. The creature this week is the Turnip Counter, a mythological monster who counts turnips. This is Myths and Legends, episode 311, Lost and Found. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're telling the story of The Lost Sword, a Japanese drama from the very late 17th century, early 18th century, about a ronin looking for a lost sword so he, his wife, and their daughter can have their life back. We'll jump in with the ronin watching from the shadows, trying to keep his former master safe. Jirobe saw the two men, waiting in the rain. Everyone else was running, trying to avoid the rainstorm that had appeared in the middle of the day. Not these two, though. These two were waiting, one on one side of the road, the other just off the path, outside the gate of the city. Jirobe knew who they were waiting for. He felt the swords at his side, swords he hadn't used for a year. It had been raining on that day, too. A year ago, Jirobe had pulled the dagger from his belt and aimed it at his belly. His master, Sakurai, had slapped him. What did he think he was doing? Jirobe said the only honorable thing. He had lost it. It was gone. If you do that, the people will ask why. Then they'll look closer. They might ask how you could have dishonored yourself so, Sakurai said, shaking his head. Jirobe, the samurai, said he had to do something. He couldn't stay on as Sakurai's retainer, his samurai, after this failure. Oh, you're not staying on. This is it for you. You're fired, Sakurai said. Jirobe couldn't even hear him anymore. He was stunned. He had trained for this, being a samurai, since he was a boy. He and his wife had left their daughter when she was two to go with his master to Ito. A samurai lives like he is already dead. He does everything for his master. Jirobe had put the rest of his life second to this. And if he wasn't a samurai anymore, what was he? It was a question he would ask himself every day for the next year. After he bowed to his master, his former master, and left. After his wife, Yumi, begged him to pick another trade, at least to move back home so they could be with their daughter, Suru. But Jirobe stayed. Sakurai might have dismissed him, but that didn't mean he wasn't Jirobe's master anymore, despite that being exactly what that means. So Jirobe watched. His wife worked or begged or both, but he was a silent guardian for his master, vigilant from the shadows, waiting for the day when his master's enemies would make their move, waiting for this day. The two men, 
they were waiting for his former lord, Sakurai. He would pass this way returning from his visit with the shogun. These men were assassins. He thought. There was only one way to be sure. Jirobe threw down his umbrella and walked toward the men. The samurai, seeing someone striding at them with purpose, immediately took notice. Hey, stop right there, one cried out. Lightning flashed. Jirobe strode up to them. Huh. Just as he thought. I know your voice, Jirobe yelled out, slowing. You're a samurai in the service of Lord Gunbei. The men looked at each other. You have come to kill my lord, Jirobe stated. The two men didn't deny it, but they looked Jirobe up and down. The man was threadbare, and the storm was probably a welcome shower. They always thought the men in the service of Sakurai were paid well. Why did the samurai look like a beggar? Jirobe knelt, burying his neck. Kill me instead. The two men looked at each other. Yeah, that's not how assassinations worked. It wasn't like they woke up and just wanted to kill somebody, anybody. No, they needed to kill Lord Sakurai. The lightning struck again. I don't care if you kill me, Jirobe yelled. Just accept my life instead of my lord's. That's, we literally just said we can't do that, one of the samurai yelled. The other, though, told Jirobe to look at him. He, he knew Jirobe. Jirobe could say that Sakurai was his lord, but he wasn't, was he? <laughs> no, Jirobe was shamed. He was cast out by his master. He's not a samurai. He's nothing. Lightning struck again, and it was pretty close. The flash was bright. When it subsided, the two samurai assassins twitched and dropped. Jirobe wiped his sword and sheathed it as the blood bloomed around the samurai in the mud. One of the men whispered his name. Jirobe turned, looking at the dying man, the raindrops hitting his open eyes. He rasped Jirobe's name again. He recognized Jirobe, recognized him from that night. Did Jirobe recognize him? With that, his last breath escaped him, and he stared up at the sky in twilight. The rain was already stopping. Jirobe knelt, saying a small prayer of thanks that he had been able to rescue his master from death. A few moments later, he heard footsteps, many footsteps. Jirobe rose. It was Lord Sakurai. Jirobe bowed and said that these men had been hired to assassinate the Lord. Sakurai facepalmed. He, he knew. Jirobe said, well, okay, but he had saved his master's life. Two things, Sakurai said. First, Jirobe wasn't his retainer anymore. Wasn't his samurai. He wasn't anybody's samurai. So Sakurai wasn't his master. Second, Jirobe didn't save his life. Jirobe shook his head. What? Sakurai whistled. Four archers, two on either side of the road, emerged from the forest. They were Gunbei's men. I was going to get them to defect, to spy for me, to confess the crimes of their master. Sakurai dismissed the archers. Sakurai shook his head, and Jirobe messed it all up. Jirobe drew his dagger, 
his tanto, and held the point facing in to his stomach. Sakurai pushed Jirobe's hand down. Stop doing that. No, not if you wanted to be one of Sakurai's retainers again. Jirobe had to pause a moment. He, a samurai again? He could have it all back. This was what he had been hoping for, praying for. How? Sakurai said, the sword. The reason Jirobe had been exiled. That night, when it was stolen while he was on guard, they still hadn't found it. Jirobe searched his mind. It had been almost a year. Why was this suddenly... The ceremony. The sword was the central part of the ceremony. Lord Tokushima led every year. Whoever stole the sword, they had been waiting for this day. Waiting for when Lord Sakurai would need to present the sword and would arrive empty-handed. The dishonor would be immeasurable. Sakurai's house would never recover. Sakurai had a problem, though. He couldn't search for the sword. Only he, Jirobe, and whoever took it knew that it was missing. That was where Jirobe came in. He was a nobody now. No one cared about him. Jirobe all but winced at the very worst his internal monologue had thrown at him over the past year, being crafted into a weapon and driven right into his chest. Still, though, this was where he got to make it right. This is how he got it all back. Jirobe didn't know how he could thank his master, but Sakurai said he could thank him by finding the sword. I will not fail you, Jirobe knelt, and immediately began going through the pockets of the samurai. What are you doing? Sakurai dragged him to his feet. Did Jirobe want people to accuse him of being a thief before he even began his search? Jirobe said, no, no, of course not. Failing to mention that he and his wife were barely making ends meet. He said he would be fine. Jirobe turned, excited about this second chance, but wondering how he was going to make it happen. We'll catch up with Jirobe on his quest, but that will be right after this. Four weeks later, Jirobe was out of breath. He clutched the coin purse in his hand and waited in the basket until the footsteps of the guards went elsewhere. Jirobe kicked the lid off and looked at his hall in the light of day and... Oh, the purse he had cut from a merchant's side before bolting through Osaka didn't have nothing, but it was close. It just felt heavier because Jirobe's purse was so light, Jirobe muttered emptying the few coins into his own pouch and then tossed the merchant's pouch aside. He needed to get home before the guard came back. He found his wife, Yumi, there, and her face dropped when she saw that he was sweaty and out of breath and she heard the jingle in his pouch. Oh, that again. Jirobe said paying for tips meant money and Osaka wasn't cheap for either of them. He just had a few short months to find the sword. Or, you could give it up, Yumi said. The sword wasn't his problem anymore. Sakurai had cast him out. Jirobe shook his head. That wasn't an option. He was so close. Yumi said, 
you want to know who talked to me in the city today? The city guard. The police. Yeah. Don't worry. They don't know you. Yet, they were asking about a cut-purse Ronin thief. Some scum that was robbing people and running. Their words. She told him it was only a matter of time until they tracked him here, or one of their neighbors talked. Then, he would only be remembered as a thief. Jerobe said, well, their prayers weren't going to pay for leads on the sword, so one of them had to do something. He turned, threw open the door, and found himself facing a samurai in a straw hat. Isimon? In an episode with too many names already, I'm about to throw a few more at you. The man at the door was Izemon, yet another samurai in the service of Lord Tokushima, Lord Sakurai's boss, basically. Remember that Sakurai was the one who was going to restore Jirobe if he can find the lost sword. Well, boss Tokushima, despite being a very powerful noble, still had family troubles. When Lord Tokushima was a boy, his father had a very loving relationship with his mother and with several other women. One of those women became pregnant. The young woman was supported by Tokushima's father, secretly, until the elder man died. After that, she and her daughter, Takao, had money problems. And before Tokushima could step in to help, his half-sister, Takao, had sold herself to a brothel to settle the debt. Well, Tokushima had come to the rescue, or was trying to. He sent a retainer with the money to free his half-sister, but the lender wasn't budging. He knew an... Uh, investment when he saw it, and no lump sum one-time payment would be more than she would make over the course of her servitude. I've exhausted all my options, Izimon said, sipping at the tea. Jorobe looked at him. I've exhausted all my legal options, Izimon clarified. Jorobe nodded. Sometimes what's legal isn't right, and what's right isn't legal. Let's go have a chat with this moneylender. I'm going out. Jirobe yelled back. Yumi emerged from another room as the door slid shut. This, this is a side quest. He was getting distracted by a side quest. Not five minutes later, a tap came. Not from the door, but a window. Yumi walked over. You Jirobe's wife? A whisper asked. Yeah, Yumi, not just Jirobe's wife. I'm a friend of his from the old days. He came to me asking about the sword recently. You need to leave town, now. The police are on to your husband. They're coming for him, Yumi, Jirobe's wife. Footsteps carried the voice away, and Yumi began packing. Great. They had his name now. He wasn't even technically in Sakurai's service, so the Lord could deny he knew anything. Where could they go now? Not knowing what else to do, she didn't want to leave after him lest he returned, she knelt down at the altar of Canon the goddess of mercy. She had an altar in the house, and she prayed. She prayed that it would all be okay, that her husband would be able to return the sword, that they would be able to see Suru again, their daughter. She rose and, from outside, heard a singing. It was a pilgrim song, dedicated to canon. The mother smiled. That was a nice reassurance. Jorobe had left his coin purse on the table, no doubt in an attempt to get his samurai friend to pay for stuff if they needed it, so Yumi fished out some coins and then the rest and emerged from the house. A girl of about nine years old walked alone on the road outside of Osaka, humming a sad song. 
Yumi approached with the money and gave it to the girl, who thanked her and tucked it away, deep in her pack. Yumi said it was a beautiful day. Where was the girl traveling from? The girl said she came from Tokushima, Awa. Yumi cocked her head. That, hmm, that's where she had come from. A chill ran up her spine. Was the girl taking a pilgrimage with her parents? The nine-year-old girl said, no, her parents weren't with her. She barely remembered even seeing her parents now. They left when she was two. Left? Yumi felt the word catch in her throat. The girl nodded. Yeah, her grandmother didn't talk about it much. She said the girl's father, a man named Jirobe, was a brave samurai. Yumi was lightheaded. She had to remind herself to breathe. I'm here to find them, the girl said. My parents, that is. A woman named Yumi and a man named Jirobe. Oh, Yumi swallowed hard. She didn't know anyone by those names, but Osaka was a big city. She was bound to find them. Okay, thanks. The girl began walking away. It killed Yumi. She knew though. She knew that if the girl knew that Yumi was her mother, nothing could stop her from joining them. Then, the girl would be in as much danger as they were. The police were closing in. She wouldn't be reunited just to be ripped apart. One source said that children, in those times, would be implicated in the crimes of their parents and could, potentially, share in their punishment. They hadn't spent years apart to be separated forever now. Yumi told herself all of those things. She told herself, but she couldn't bring herself to follow her own advice. Yumi turned back to the girl, who wasn't far off. Hey, would the girl like something to eat? The girl, who was almost falling over, she was so hungry, happily took Yumi up on the offer. The girl, her suru, was alone. That was how Yumi learned her mother-in-law was dead. She had fallen ill. When word stopped coming from Ito, when the money stopped coming a year ago, the family didn't know what happened. No one would tell the then eight-year-old or her elderly grandmother that her father was now disgraced. A ronin, the grandmother went back to work the same day she became ill, and the decline was only steeper after that. She had died a month ago, leaving only two letters, one for Suru and one for Jirobe. Suru had started off that day. She slept in the fields or, when it rained, under the eaves of houses. On those days, she awoke to beatings and people chasing her off. But she would find her parents, no matter where they were or what they had done. The mother swallowed a sob. She couldn't tell the girl. It was for her own good. Instead, she piled whatever food she had in the house in front of Suru, telling her to eat what she could and take the rest. She went back to the room and lifted up a board. To the cache of cash that she had hoarded away from her husband, it wasn't much, a small pile of silver, but it would cover a night or two at an inn. The girl left soon after that. Yumi had to make sure of it. She didn't know when the police would be at their house, and she couldn't have them thinking that Suru was her daughter. It was the right thing to do. So why did it feel so horrible? 
the whole time after she watched her daughter disappear into the gnarled pines that separated their house from the gates of Osaka, Yumi knew that this was it. When they left their daughter seven years ago, she had been with her grandmother. It was what you did. It hurt. And they thought of her always. But the shogun demanded it. So they obeyed. Now, she was disappearing into the night. A nine-year-old, alone in the world, a world that would be dangerous for an adult. What was Yumi doing? The mother grabbed her cloak and ran into the night. Maybe they would leave. Maybe they would all go to prison. Regardless, they would be together. She wouldn't make the same mistake again. Well, for the third time. We'll see the reunion with Suru, but that will, once again, be right after this. Jirobe was on his way back from the mission at the brothel. No dice. The man wouldn't even take the money if two samurai were threatening him. This might have to get drastic. Hey, you got money? One man yelled out to someone on the street. Another called out, Yeah, she does. She's been begging all day. Jirobe would like to say that it was the sound of someone in need. A girl who couldn't have been older than nine that piqued his interest, but it was the mention of the word money. Now, though, that he had checked himself, he did see the growing group of men come out of the shadows. It was night, now, and the street just inside the gate was empty. One man grabbed the girl's arm, and Jirobe reached for his sword. Then, remember that he was already knee-deep in a side quest and couldn't afford to straight-up kill somebody? So, he just raised his walking stick. After the four men were unconscious or fleeing, Jirobe told the girl that it wasn't safe. Was she looking for a place to stay for the night? The girl didn't even respond. Before Jirobe replied for her, of course she was. Out there alone? Come on. He grabbed her arm and led her out of the gate, back toward home. They avoided the forest. Too many possibilities for bandits and the heat was bad enough already. Yumi, we have a guest, Jirobe yelled out. But no one responded. Jirobe rifled through the cupboards. Huh, no food. He turned to the girl. Hey, those men seemed to think that she had money. Did she have anything? Jirobe could run to a neighbor and buy some food from them. The girl brought out a piece of silver. Jirobe laughed. Uh, she had to have more than that if those bandits were after her. The girl said she did, but her grandmother told her, before she died, not to show strangers how much money she carried. Jirobe laughed. Uh, he wasn't a stranger. He was the man who just saved her life. She should be grateful. If it wasn't for him, all the money would be gone. Come on, let's see it. The girl said, no. In fact, she no longer wanted to be here. She rose, but Jirobe made it to the door faster. His hand found the handle. He made sure it didn't budge. He took a deep breath. Look, he will be honest with her. She had money. He needed money. It wasn't a difficult problem to work out. He wasn't a bandit. She should think of this like a loan. She just had to give it to him. He would pay it back with interest, 
and they go spend a day in the city having fun. Come on, be a good girl. The girl backed up. He, the man, needed to move. She didn't want to be here anymore. She started to scream for help. He flew to her and put his hand over her mouth. He told her that she couldn't do that. Drobe was in enough trouble as it was. The guards were always looking for him. She would bring them right to the house. I, look, I am so sorry. I don't want to rob a child. I have a kid about your age. I'm trying to get back to her. And the only way to do that is to be a samurai again. I told my master I would do anything. This is what I meant. The girl settled down in his arms. Jerobe breathed. Okay. She was ready to be calm now? Because he couldn't have any more of that screaming. You be real. He wasn't going to hurt her ever. But she couldn't scream. I'm going to let you go now, Jerobe said after a few more moments. And he moved his hand away from her face. And her head drooped. Hey, come on, what are you doing? Did you faint? Jerobe said, turning the girl around. But her head lolled back at a sharp angle. Her eyes were open. Jerobe set her down on the floor and ran to go grab some water. His shoes skidded on the planks as he sprinkled the water at first, then poured it. The girl wasn't waking up. Jerobe looked at his hands. He didn't know. He didn't know that when he covered her mouth, he was covering her nose, too. No matter how much water he splashed in her face, the girl wasn't going to wake up. Jerobe had accidentally smothered her with his hand. The girl was dead. Jerobe buried his face in his hands. Then, a sound at the door. Yumi. Jerobe dragged the body to the corner of the room and threw a blanket over the girl. Help me, help me, Yumi cried out. She was here. They needed to find her and leave immediately. The cops were on their way. Jerobe said the sister of the daimyo? He was working on that. They couldn't leave yet. Yumi said, his ridiculous samurai thing? No, their daughter. She was in Osaka. As Yumi explained what happened that day, Jerobe could feel his stomach sink. His hands shook. He interrupted his wife before she made it to the end. The girl, Suru, what, what did she look like? What was she wearing? Yumi smiled. She, she looked like them. She was their little girl, all grown up. She was beautiful. She wore a long-sleeved robe, brightly patterned at spring blossoms. She carried a pilgrim's pack. Vomit filled Jerobe's mouth. He choked it back down. He took a deep, quavering breath. Suru, their girl. She was there. He pointed to the blanket in the corner. What do you say? What could Jerobe say? That he hadn't meant to? That it was an accident? That he had been so single-minded when it came to money and seeing his mission through, to being a samurai again, that the only thing he thought about was shutting her up? 
Yumi sat in the corner, gripping her knees, staring at the body. Jirobe walked over. What are you doing? Yumi asked, glaring at her husband. We need the money. I need the money, Jirobe managed, before he started going through Suru's pockets. Yumi shook her head in disgust. If he was willing to stoop so low, there was nothing her words could do to change any of that. Jirobe found the money. His wife's money, so next to nothing. That was all that Suru had died for. But as he took his hand out of the pack, it grazed a piece of paper. Jirobe pulled it out and opened it, and it was a letter from his mother. It was for him when Suru found them. I know why you left. I know why you have not come back home. The letter read. I will keep this brief. Onoto Gunbei took the Kunitsugu sword. Jirobe gasped. The sword? So Gunbei was the one who stole it. That made actually complete sense. That's based on rumors, but well-founded rumors. I can't investigate further without drawing attention. And I'm not like you. I can't leave this girl to go on my adventures. The letter continued, but I am leaving. I'm dying. I've taken ill. I don't... I worry about the girl. She will be alone without you and Yumi, but she is wonderful. She's smart, capable. She can write and sew and read. She has been my pupil, and I am proud of her. Take care of our precious little one. A sob choked Jirobe's throat. And Yumi burst into tears. Yumi cried because her daughter was gone in a tragic accident. Jirobe rose. So, it was Gunbei who stole the sword. He should have seen it sooner. Our daughter is dead, Jirobe, Yumi said, pulling the girl over and cradling her. Jirobe shook his head. Yeah, of course. Then, a pounding at the door. It was the guard. Jirobe looked down with a panic. Theft was one thing. Murder, another. He told Yumi to take the body to the back room. He would deal with this. Deal with it how? Jirobe. Jirobe looked at his wife. I know where the sword is. I won't give up now. He slid the door shut. The blood hissed and the smoke grew as Jirobe piled the remains of the chair onto the fire. The guards had fought well, but... If they were samurai, they wouldn't have been guards. The ones that could run did. Jirobe and Yumi made Suru's funeral pyre from the debris that remained after the fight. Yumi walked up, the smashed remains of the altar of cannon in her hands. It reminded her of her prayer, of the pilgrim's song. Thanks, Jirobe said, gripping it and throwing it into the fire. It's ready now. After laying the wrapped body on the flames, the parents watched the smoke and the ash ascend, ascend to a place that was different from this one. They hoped a better place. How could it not be? Jirobe watched for a bit, then turned. They needed to pack. Yumi remained with her daughter for a few moments longer. 
Jirobe was home. Well, back in the city with Sakurai, the place that had been his home for seven years. This was the place he would die. Well, he would if the samurai waiting in ambush had any say in the matter. After they cremated Suru, Izeman, the other samurai in the service of Lord Tokushima, remember, he's Sakurai's boss, knocked on the door, saying that the moneylender who kept Tokushima's half-sister in slavery wouldn't relent. Jirobe went with him to the brothel, and, well, a katana across the neck made a lot more progress than weeks of negotiation. They were gone with Tokushima's sister before anyone knew they were even there. They had arrived back in Sakurai City just that morning, but word traveled quickly. The sister, Takao, was safe in Sakurai's manor, but Gunbei, Sakurai's rival and the true thief of the sword, was seeking retribution for the men he had lost to Jirobe a couple of months prior, in the rain. Now, Jirobe was going to die. Or so the men thought. The first lunged from the trees, sword slicing the wind, but the wind was all it sliced. Jirobe dodged, but didn't counter. He knew the second man was there. Instead, he sidestepped the first attacker, gripped his kimono from behind, and pushed. The other samurai's sword bit into the torso and neck before the man could stop himself. The samurai recoiling in horror, Jirobe pushed away the body of the man's friend and launched his own attack. He would have had that samurai too, if not for the shouting. Guards came rushing from the gate. Both Jirobe and the samurai sheathed their swords, and the samurai pointed. This, this ronin, attacked them. Lord Sakurai strode onto the scene. The guards turned to their feudal master. Jirobe couldn't say it. He couldn't tell everyone that he was there working for Sakurai, that Gunbei had stolen the sword, and that his samurai had started it. The truth was, Dotesuke, the samurai, was a samurai, a noble in his own right. Jirobe was a ronin, a nothing. You may take him, Sakurai shook his head in disappointment at Jirobe. Dispense justice as your lord sees fit. A life for a life. What? Jirobe stepped forward. After everything. After all the... All the dishonor you brought upon my house and yourself and your family? Yes, Lord Sakurai replied. Do yourself a favor, if nothing else. Give yourself a good death. Jirobe clenched his jaw in rage and, having nothing else, spat in Lord Sakurai's face as the guards bound his wrists. They handed him over to Dotosuke, the samurai. Gumbe's gonna have fun with you, Dotosuke whispered, dragging Jirobe to the horse of his dead friend. Jirobe looked back and saw Lord Sakurai fuming. Jirobe glared back at him, but hoped that Sakurai wasn't mad. They hadn't rehearsed the spit, but it just felt right in the moment. Everything else, though, had gone according to plan. Jirobe was headed for Gunbei's compound, right into the belly of the beast. Blood trickled down Jirobe's hands. Gunbei's samurai, when they passed him in the yard, tied to a tree, would laugh and twist the rope that bound his wrists. He expected that. 
He had mentally prepared for that, but he didn't prepare for Takao, the woman he and the other samurai rescued from the brothel. She was in Gunbei's window. Gunbei, in between slaps to Jirobe's gagged mouth, followed the captive's eyes. Oh, yeah, her? Yeah, he liberated her from Sakurai's compound earlier this morning. While Sakurai was out handling Jirobe's latest failure, Gunbei was going to marry her. Jirobe was shouting through the gag, but Gunbei only laughed. The boss left the sound of a samurai, laying into Jirobe once again. What are you doing to my brother out there? Takao ran to the door when Gunbei entered the room. He said her, her what? Her brother? Takao nodded. Yes, Jirobe. Her brother. Gunbei grinned. Well, this was a fortuitous turn of events. Since he had kidnapped her that morning, she had been resistant to him. Surprise. He went to the window and called out. The samurai outside stopped and Jirobe, drooping on the tree, breathed in relief. Accept my love and he will go free. Reject me and he dies, Gunbei said, cutting directly to the chase. Takao dropped her head. That wasn't up to her? Gunbei said he didn't understand. She said, as they knew, they lived in feudal Japan during the Edo period. Gunbei nodded. Yes, that was the period of time in which they lived. She said, well, as a woman in this time, she couldn't own property, a husband could kill his wife for being lazy or bad, and most importantly for this situation, she had no choice over who she married. Her parents had died, so that fell to her brother. Gunbei shrugged. Okay, she could go out and tell him that either he agreed to give her in marriage to him or they both died. Fair? Takao shook her head, not remotely. Don't care, go and talk to him. Takao took the gag from Jirobe and untied him from the tree. He asked, uh, what was she doing here? This was way more dangerous than the brothel. Takao smiled. She was just another part of the plan. Jirobe was wide-eyed. Wait. She was taken on purpose? Same as you, she said. They had minutes. She told him where his sword was kept. After he gave her away to Gunbei, he would be released. But he needed to get to the concealed spot downstream. She would send him a signal when she found the sword. She got Jirobe caught up on exactly what was going on. And when Gunbei emerged, Jirobe, as Takao's older brother, gave his uh, compulsory blessing. He was released, but took the long way to the front gate, never actually making it to the front gate. Takao was prepared to do what she had to do in order to find the sword. But then, but then, filled in on the details from Jirobe, she spotted it right there, right on Gunbei's belt. It had a gold handguard, carved with butterflies and flowers. But she had to be sure. She moved in close to her husband-to-be and drew the sword. Gumbei demanded to know what this was all about, and Takao held the sword up to her hair. She would rather cut her hair and become a nun than marry him. Gunbei rolled his eyes. Ugh. He shoved her, took the sword, and ordered her tied to the tree that still had Jirobe's blood on it. Also, 
Find that brother of hers. He couldn't have gotten far. Hey, you got my money? Gunbei heard as he was shouting out orders, and one of his retainers, Dotesuke, was tying to cow to the tree. Gunbei chuckled at the priest who just walked in. They should talk about this later. Like, privately, really privately. Buddy, I've been praying for the death of the Daimo of Tokushima, that he would get so sick he died. I've been praying all the time, just like you asked me to. I need the money, though. The money that you promised me, for praying for his illness and death. Gunbei said he was good for it. The priest just needed to chill out with all that death talk. Priest shrugged. Whatever. No more prayers until he got his money. Meanwhile, Takao knew what she saw. The Knitsugu sword. Of course, of course Gunbei would carry it on his person. She shook the tree, and the blossoms dropped into the water. She signaled Jirobe. Jirobe knocked. Gunbei answered. Gunbei stood, unable to really understand what he saw. What did they think they were doing? I've convinced my sister to marry you, Jirobe informed Gunbei. She stood behind him. He had freed her from the tree. Gunbei shook his head. Wow, I can't believe that. Come on in. I'm very persuasive, Jirobe said. I'm sorry for her conduct. No, when I said I can't believe it, I meant exactly that. Brother, Gunbei said. He drew his sword and lunged at Jirobe. There it is, Takao said, pointing to the sword. Jirobe blocked the blow, but looked at the sword. She was right. It was the Kunitsugu sword. Gunbei stepped back. Oh, okay, so that's what this was about. They were after the sword, huh? The pieces immediately fell into place. Sakurai. They were working for Sakurai. Gunbei laughed and launched his attack. He wailed at Jirobe, and the Ronin was surprised. He had Gunbei pegged as a weak noble, but the man could fight. He could barely hold Gunbei off. Then there was a noise at the door. It was Lord Sakurai. He was bound and shoved into the room. He approached the gate, said you took a woman he was looking after, Dotosuke, one of Gunbei's samurai, said. I did, Gunbei said. He turned to Sakurai. The plan was revealed, the spies he sent in to find the sword. Gunbei said he almost made it too to the ceremony. He would have liked to have seen Sakurai shamed at the ceremony on the following day. But it was better to see him dead. Gunbei nodded at a samurai, Dotesuke. Kill him. The samurai drew his blade and sliced. Gunbei had to turn back because Jirobe attacked anew, tears in his eyes, the second that Gunbei gave the order. Gunbei only laughed. He had the ronin outmatched now with his other samurai. It was only a matter of time. That is, until Gunbei felt the blade touch the back of his neck. He turned to see Sakurai, unbound, sword out. How? Dotesuke stepped forward. We got to him early, Sakurai smiled. That man was more than happy to collect money from Sakurai to inform on his master. Gumbei sneered. Well, you know, they wanted the sword, they got it. Good job. He opened his hands, and the Kunitsugu sword clattered on the ground. Gumbei's hands were empty, and unlike him, 
he knew his enemy wouldn't kill him unarmed. That's not all. Not anymore, Sakurai said to his old rival. Bring him in. Dotosuke listened to his true master and dragged the priest inside, the priest who had been praying ceaselessly for the death of Lord Tokushima. Should have paid me, the priest said with a smile. Then he felt a sharp shove as he was lumped in with Gunbei. Wait, was, was he in trouble too? He was. They apparently took that seriously as an attempt on the life of the daimyo. Gunbei was a traitor. He was locked in the courtyard and, when Sakurai declared that anybody who corroborated Dotosuke's story could join his household, he had more than enough witnesses. Jirobe picked up the Kunitsugu sword, the focus of his quest, and bowed low, presenting it to his master. Sakurai took it, declaring Jirobe to be a true and faithful samurai. As the sun rose on the dawn of the day of the ceremony, Jirobe had done it. He was a samurai in the good standing of his lord once again. Gunbei would be executed, no one would really mourn him. Turned out being a massive amoral jerk to everyone will do that to you. Jirobe attended the ceremony with Yumi by his side. She managed to dry her eyes and keep them that way long enough out in public. The men came up and bowed before Jirobe, congratulating him on being restored. He accepted their congratulations. Yumi didn't look at any of them. She couldn't. So, nice ceremony, Jirobe said to Yumi on their way home. Yumi said nothing. He reached for her hand. She pulled it away. When they arrived at their new house, on the estate of Lord Sakurai, Jirobe turned to his wife, but she was gone. The door to another room was sliding shut. She didn't understand. He did what had to be done. He was a samurai. A samurai gives everything for his master. And Jirobe had done it. He had restored his honor and the honor of his household. He heard his wife sob from behind the wall. And that was all he heard his household. He sat down on the cold floor, a chill sweeping through. There, alone, a memory bubbled to the surface. It was another march, a march seven years ago, before he joined Sakurai's house, before any of this. Jirobe remembered walking with Yumi, swinging Suru between them on a warm spring morning. Back when she was two. Back before they had to leave her. They barely had anything back then, but they had each other. He blinked. He was back in his house. It was silent now. Sleep had taken Yumi. The gray light of the overcast sky filtered in, and Jirobe sat alone in the ornate room. He was a samurai, and a samurai gives everything. The original, of course, ends as a celebration of the finding of the sword and the reinstatement of Jirobe, but I kind of wanted the character to sit with the weight of what he had done. The story never presents an alternative, but there was one. Jirobe could have left. That was a thing samurai could do. 
He could have taken up another trade, it would have been socially shameful, but his daughter and mother would be alive and his wife would be speaking to him. There are a lot of stories about giving it your all to achieve your goals, and in this one, Jirobe does. He sacrifices everything, and he achieves his goal at the end. He's just left utterly alone for what it cost. If you're looking for something else to listen to, we brought Best of the Worst back. It's another podcast that Carissa and I do, and it's a fun twice-a-week show where we do basically a Creature of the Week segment, but with a ridiculous villain from comic book history. This week, it's the Leapfrog from Spider-Man and the Penny Plunderer from Batman. If you're interested, check out villains.lol or follow the link in the show notes. Once again, that's Best of the Worst at villains.lol or follow the link in the show notes. The creature this time is Rubzal, from Czech and German folklore. So, by no fault of your own, you're out in the dark forest. You might spot a monk in a gray frock. You might spot a woodcutter, a hunter, a charcoal burner, and Odin himself. Those are all the shape-shifting Rubzal. His name literally meaning turnip counter, for reasons we'll get into, he's mostly harmless. The majority of the time, he just likes getting people hopelessly lost in forests full of hungry, dangerous animals. That is, unless you make fun of him, and then he'll exact unspecified revenge. So yeah, if you meet a stranger in the woods, don't laugh at him, but also don't be aloof and standoffish. Don't take his directions, but don't offend him by not taking his directions, then you'll be good. This delightful little scamp who might lead you to a long, slow death of starvation in the forest got his name because, well, He's also a very creepy little dude. He kidnapped a princess and wanted to marry her, as mythological creatures are wont to do, but he wanted to make sure she was happy. Since freedom was off the table, she settled for her next best option. Turnips. Yeah, she loved turnips. The Rubzal, in his true form as a mythological dwarf, planted a whole field of turnips. They grew and he brought them to life, so she could now have fun little friends she could eat and who would rot at the rate of normal produce, which, horrifying. She looked at the multitude of friends and wondered, how many turnips had the Rubzal planted for her? Ever eager to please, but not in the way that would involve the princess being able to leave, the Rubzal got to counting. While he counted, the princess just uh, walked away. One takeaway is, of course, be wary of people who are into fruits and vegetables obvious. Uh, another one though, don't kidnap people. The Rubzal wouldn't be laughed at as a turnip counter if he didn't kidnap people. So yeah, just don't do it. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.